This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The globalist doomed attempt to replace God. Since World War II, humanity has deceived itself by believing that a single global government could bring peace and harmony. The appeal of globalism is as understandable as it is unworkable. The globalist error begins with pride. They believe that humans perfect themselves and create a godless brotherhood of man. If all people decide to set aside their selfish vices, we can live in harmony. This is not a reality. The new global man does not lose his vices. In fact, he adds the vice of materialism. What global man does lose is himself. His individuality is swallowed up in a world of sameness. Mr. John Horvat addressed the dehumanizing influence of globalism in Crusade Magazine's March-April 2000 issue. In that article, he uses a simple illustration, a bottle of apple juice. We bring you Mr. Horvat's Reflections Upon a Globalized Apple. All too often, the debate around globalization centers on the economics of production. It is naturally assumed that nations which are able to undersell others in a certain product should do so. Such a system ensures the greatest variety of goods at the lowest price. While the globalized economy does enrich the world by circulating a vast array of quality goods, that is only part of the story. It also impoverishes. There is a cultural aspect to globalization that is often ignored. Culture, by definition, incorporates the beliefs, behaviors, language, and the entire way of life of a particular people. It is reflected in customs, ceremonies, works of art, inventions, technology, traditions, foods, and economy. Christian civilization, with its constant impulse toward perfection, especially enriches culture. However, there is something in the very nature of man whereby anything he touches expresses his culture. All peoples take delight in the uniqueness of their own existence and constantly look for different ways to express it or see themselves reflected in their surroundings and products. Thus, the world rightly praises Italy's vast array of pastas, Germany's variety of beers, or the assortment of Kentucky bourbons. In some way, all these products reflect the respective locale and culture. It is a tribute to the inventiveness of a people when they create surprising and novel products by extracting, developing, and refining resources from their surroundings. Sometimes the place itself is so important that the product cannot be produced anywhere else. From the blending of local berries and special grapes, for example, the great Burgundy wines were born. From the cactus in the scorching Mexican desert, tequila was distilled. Something of this local creativity is lost in globalization. Take the case of the lowly apple. Buy a simple bottle of apple juice at an American supermarket and look at the listing of the juice's origins. Quote, Contains concentrate from Argentina, Austria, Brazil, Chile, China, Germany, Hungary, Italy, Turkey, and United States, unquote. One such label reads. In this case, 
the multinational Apple ceases to express a single culture and becomes a savorless product to slake the thirst of its undiscriminating consumer. The globalized apple juice flees from any kind of distinctiveness. It makes a metaphysical statement by affirming that quantity is worth more than quality and that large quantities of a thing are more important than its irrefinement and individuality. Where there are literally hundreds of varieties of apples, the globalized apple suppresses their characteristics and blends them all into a bland mixture of apple concentrates. All apples are equal and blended in a concentrate where the particular characteristics of a Hungarian apple are indistinguishable from those of an Argentine apple. Gone is the distinctive, tart flavor of a local cider, replaced by the homogenized essence of apple made for the globalized masses. It might be argued that globalized apple juice is a lamentable but necessary reality in the world market economy. Apple concentrate from several nations simply supplies overwhelming American demand. Again, that is not the full story. Globalized apple juice comes at a time when American apple production is at an all-time high. Apple orchards across the country are producing record harvests. However, the prices adjusted for inflation paid to growers declined to the lowest level since the Great Depression, while consumer prices actually inched upward. Apple juice prices $189 a ton in 1995, stood at $40 a ton five years later. Other farmers report offers as low as $10 a ton and simply let the apples rot rather than pick them. Floods of imports, especially from communist China, have run orchard owners out of business. An economic climate wherein Turkish apple juice can be imported and sold cheaper than a juice produced a mile down the road creates instability among producers. The incentive to produce new kinds of juices and other apple products is lost in the struggle for survival. Something of the local creativity in the quest for a better apple is lost. Something of tradition is lost when orchard owners who have raised quality apples for generations leave their farms. Ultimately, the consumer loses. There will always be high-priced quality juices available at gourmet shops. However, those common tangy juices so expressive of an area and accessible to all are inevitably the first victims of the globalized apple. The apple is but one example. When the apple's plight extends to other fields, something of the way we express ourselves and something of our culture is lost, never to be regained. Globalists do not stop with apple juice. Echoing the ideas of Karl Marx, globalists reduce the individual person into a faceless and soulless mass of humanity. They despise individual nations just as much. They especially hate the United States, the land of the free needs to be reduced to a, quote, sustainable level. So the globalists meet in places like Davos, Switzerland, and design their anti-American nightmares. This episode of the Return to Order Moment continues by looking at two of those dreams, one economic and one environmental.
Mr. John Horvat discusses the economic element in his essay, Why the Global Minimum Tax Threatens American Sovereignty. The name Global Minimum Tax should immediately set off red flags. No American likes to hear the two words global and tax in the same expression. It implies a surrender of sovereignty to a vague and mysterious world body. They also don't like to see minimum and tax together. Experience shows that taxes rarely stay minimal and tend to become maximal. Based on the name alone, it is best to trash the whole idea. However, the Biden administration wants to approve this disastrous idea. The three words that sound so threatening are proposed in the name of two words that everyone wants to see restrained. Big Tech. Thus, Treasury Secretary Janice Yellen is lobbying Congress, asking them to, quote, please jump from the frying pan into the fire, unquote, to rein in Big Tech. American participation, she claims, will also show goodwill in cooperating with the quote-unquote world community. That's two more ambiguous words that don't belong together. Everything about the global minimum tax screams no. Yet the administration is asking for an inexcusable yes. Americans should go with their gut instinct and reject the measure. The tax treaty will set dangerous precedents, unfairly target American industries, and surrender tax sovereignty. The project is the work of the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which proposes a global tax treaty with two parts. OECD claims that the first part would attack the revenue-shifting practices of big-tech firms that take advantage of foreign tax structures to avoid paying taxes on profits. It says the second provision is to level the tax playing field by establishing a global minimum tax rate of 15% on large multinational firms. OECD claims that it would do this by cracking down on business-friendly tax havens. The plan consists of two treaties codifying the new tax. The proposal has met with stiff opposition in Congress by those who fear a negative impact upon specific sectors of the U.S. economy. Two broad objections must also be considered. The first objection is a very serious shift in American tax tradition. The new tax will not deliver the collected monies to an outside international body. However, it will allow an outside body to dictate American tax policy. The U.S. thus becomes tied to foreign interests. The Catholic principle of subsidiarity holds that the powers of government should be exercised by the governing level closest to those affected by the laws. In the case of the giant companies affected by the global minimum tax, the governing authority is the federal government. It needs to remain so. The U.S. Constitution clearly states, quote, All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, unquote. It does not allow foreign nations or international bodies to determine tax rates or interfere in tax matters. 
There are reasons why the taxing power is non-delegable. For starters, Congress has some degree of accountability that limits the abuse that comes with keeping the purse strings. International organizations are unaccountable. They are run by faceless bureaucrats with no expected loyalty to America. Giving international bodies the power to regulate U.S. tax matters is unconstitutional and opens the way for abuse. National security is another reason. The ability to tax is a sovereign prerogative that allows a nation to determine its destiny. When other bodies can affect tax policy, it can paralyze government action and allow rival nations to exploit the power to their advantage. The second objection to the global minimum tax is its application and enforcement. If the tax did level the tax playing field, some might consider it an exercise of fair play. Nations would welcome it with open arms. Indeed, 130 of the 139 member nations of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development have already signed the agreement. However, the reality on the ground is the contrary. The treaties lock in unfair treatment for big tech. They target American firms while excluding many foreign manufacturers. As the negotiations proceed, nations are working to carve out exemptions and special privileges favoring special interests. The vague provisions of the treaty show every sign of ballooning into a bureaucratic nightmare of regulation and overreach. Far from leveling the playing field, the global minimum tax turns it into an explosive minefield. Of particular concern is the kid-glove treatment accorded to China. It profits most from these treaties. True to its communist ideology, Red China is notorious for signing international treaties and promptly disregarding them. China will use the treaties as a means to expand trade and continue its unfair practices. The rules-abiding United States will be left with an agreement that betrays the American worker again by making offshoring attractive. As the terrible Paris Agreement, these treaties are easy to enter, but complicated to untangle and leave. The global minimum tax is a disaster that must be avoided. It erodes national sovereignty, paralyzes government tax policy, and puts American firms at a great disadvantage. It gives Americans no recourse beyond an international body that has skewed the rules against them. The best minimum global tax is zero. Keep it away from America. Globalists believe that environmental issues may be their key to power. The logic is simple. The environment crosses national borders. So, to control the environment, one must control the world. However, many factors contribute to the environment. Almost everything affects the environment in some way. Only Almighty God can control all of them. But that fact does not keep deluded people from trying. For a group who call themselves climatarians, the important factor is one's diet. Mr. Horvat describes their delusions in his essay, The Contradictions of Climatarian, an Eco-Sect that Wants to Change the World. One trendy diet lifestyle now making the rounds is part diet, part eco-activism, and part religion. 
it involves more than just counting calories and steps. This craze is beyond fruits and nuts or the eco-friendly hunter-gatherer paleo paradigm of diets past. Its followers exhibit an almost religious devotion to the earth. They make it their mission to safeguard the eco-future by eating nothing that does not pass rigid carbon footprint protocols. Their diet has no name, but a concern for the climate defines it. Driven by this climate panic, the person becomes the diet and is thus called a climatarian. For the climatarian, everything is about sustainable eating and living. It is not enough that all things be organic and healthy. Thus, not all fruits, nuts, or meats are equal. Climatarians insist that they be locally sourced to avoid the use of carbon-heavy transportation infrastructure. Not even all local products are equal. Everything must be scrutinized to see that they adhere to eco-friendly practices. Healthy foods like local almonds are taboo because they use too much water. Farm-to-plate distances must be kept to a minimum, which makes only local avocados acceptable. The first commandment of climatarianism is never eat anything without considering its emission levels and carbon footprints, no matter what. The second commandment is a bit more flexible. Buy anything certified by the liberal establishment to be climatarian-friendly, no matter the contradictions. The contradictions come from market forces looking for ways to brand themselves climatarian-friendly while making a good profit. The trick is to give the impression of strict sustainability, organicity, and climate concern that can be instantly ordered with a click of an inorganic computer mouse. Thus, when climatarians first appeared around 2015, it did not take long for big business to notice them. Soon, all sorts of climatarian-friendly options appeared on the market. Restaurants like Chipotle and Just Salad have put these products on their menus. Food companies offer these options online and will send them anywhere with free quote-unquote carbon-neutral shipping. Almost anything can be turned carbon-neutral by buying carbon offsets in some distant Amazon jungle. Offsets cover a multitude of eco-sins. Thus, the problem with the climatarian option is that it functions inside the globalized high-tech world. The option uses the global trade, energy, electronic, and information networks that tend to destroy the earthly local culture climatarians claim to support. The postmodern climatarian world is one of image, simulacra, and fluidity, undergirded by a modern infrastructure that supplies the power to keep the eco-show going. This contradiction of dueling physical infrastructures is mirrored by a clash of spiritual perspectives. The climatarian option is choreographed to project the image of organically produced food sourced in nature-friendly communities respectful toward the land. It imagines low-tech production, full of color and creativity. Thus, 
This option requires a human type with the character and spiritual qualities that allow such production to happen. However, the climatarians are unwilling to adopt the lifestyles that make this organic imagery possible. The archetypical climatarians are not locally centered since they have no permanent roots or secured identity. They are hyper-individualists that do not accept moral restrictions since such rules would forbid the instant gratification that allows them to be and do whatever they want. Organic society presupposes a moral infrastructure, which most climatarians will not embrace. It assumes deep-rooted communities that distill traditions over generations and thus take care of the land. The production of such local and organic products needs vibrant families with strong traditions to give stability and dynamism to production. Above all, the most authentic organic society is a fruit of Christian civilization that teaches people to live together in virtue and harmony with nature, including human nature. This Christian vision provides the conditions for the full development of culture and economy that look upon creation as a gift of God to reflect His greater glory. Thus, the climatarian lifestyle has nothing of the organic character that produces the foods they crave. It has everything of the frenetic intemperance that gave rise to the industrialized, mass-produced world they claim to hate. Climatarians embrace a tribal primitive existence inside the hip, woke world of all things liberal. Postmodern climatarians accept and even celebrate these contradictions as part of their chaotic worlds. Their immoral lifestyles destroy society while their eco-activism claims to save the earth. Their habits are unstructured inside hyper-organized infrastructures. They seek out mystical experiences inside a brutal secularism. Climatarians are born from the perceived imbalance in how society harmonizes with nature. They see the frenetic intemperance of a world that leads to chaos and disorder. They observe very real problems that need to be addressed. However, they do not dare to challenge the immoral society responsible for so much of this disorder. Indeed, they change their diets without adopting the moral perspective needed to return to order. This concludes The Globalist Doomed Attempt to Replace God. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. 
copyright 2021, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.